Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Paul says in verse 1 of Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. It's like everything else. Paul just packs a lot of stuff in a few words. But... Let me deal with just a couple technical things here. Verse 1, Paul hearkens back, because remember, we break up all of these books in chapter and verse, which I'm glad because it would, um, it would be difficult to know where someone was referencing um, when you want to go to a particular verse, uh, especially large books like you know, Isaiah, some of the Old Testament prophets, um, the Psalms wouldn't be too bad because they are broken down into individual Psalms. But then some of the larger Psalms, it would be hard to know where someone is, is talking about without the verse headings. But with that said, we still have to understand that while the Bible is inspired, chapter and verse divisions are not inspired <laughs> in fact there are times when uh, you read them and you think why in the world did they break i mean they'll break a, a chapter break in the middle of a thought but here paul harkens back here he says for this reason for what reason well he's calling back to verse 20 through 22 just the previous thought where he was talking about building a building he his this entire section here through from from verse 2 through verse 13 is kind of a parenthetical thought paul starts this for this reason i paul the prisoner of of christ jesus for you gentiles he picks that thought back up in verse 14 for this reason i bow my knees and he's, he's going to pray a prayer, but his prayer in 14 through the end deals with building the body of Christ. From verse 2 through 13, he just takes off. And Paul has this habit where he just, one little thought will catch him, and he's off on a tangent. And sometimes, you know, well, all the time, these tangents are great. They give us a lot of, of information. And in particular, Paul is going to, in, in verse 2 through 13, he's going to open this topic of the mystery of Christ. 
And the mystery specifically, and I'll, I'll get into it more here in, in a minute, is about the church age and about the different dispensations. But before I get there, because I'm already getting ahead of myself, I want to pick up one little thought. Because Paul, remember, every word that Paul, Paul was a very logical writer. And he didn't just, he used words very precisely at times. Now his grammar is horrible. He has some of his, um, even in Greek, you shouldn't have run-on sentences. And some of Paul's sentences are more like paragraphs. And if he had had an editor, I'm sure his editor would have been breaking these thoughts up. But in verse 1, he makes the statement that he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He's specifically addressing the Ephesian church now, the Gentiles in that church. But he's saying, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus, which is in some ways people look at it as a little odd because at this time Paul was in prison, but he was in prison in Rome. In, in point of fact, he was a prisoner of Nero, the emperor at the time, and every day he was chained to a Roman guard. They had a short chain and I guess wrist cuffs, and they chained him to a different guard different times. They would, I'm sure they took shifts, which for the guards was was great. I mean, Paul had a lot of privileges as a prisoner because he hadn't really violated Roman law. It was pretty common knowledge that he had violated Jewish law and it was the Jewish leaders that were going to come to Rome to present their evidence. So because of that, and he was a Roman citizen, he had a lot of privileges. He had his own house. He wasn't in a dungeon somewhere. He was in a house and he, they, they, he had personal guards that came and, and watched him. The great news for the, for the Roman guards were they had one of the greatest theological minds that ever lived chained to him. He preached the gospel. He got a lot of the Praetorian Guard because they were, these were Praetorian uh, soldiers because regular Roman soldiers were not allowed in the city of Rome. Only the Praetorian Guard, the special guard for the emperor, was allowed to be within the city limits. By the time Paul went to trial, half or more of the Praetorian Guard were saved. They were Christians, which, you know, they had, the, the Praetorian Guard had great privileges also. So th this was a, a one way that God used to, you know, I hate the, the um, cliche, but... God took lemons and made lemonade. Paul was, had been arrested. His, his travels were restricted. He couldn't just travel through Asia Minor. He, he had a great desire to go to Spain, which we have indications that he, he, he might have made it, but there are other indications that no, he didn't make it. It depends on which scholar you read after, whether he ever made it to, to Spain to preach the gospel. But despite being in prison, for one thing, when, while he was in prison, it did force him to communicate with the churches through letters, which is our, the, the primary source of our New Testament today. Plus, a great number of the Praetorian Guard got saved because of his witness. But it's interesting that this is the, the attitude 
of Paul, he never thought of himself as a prisoner of Rome. He, he viewed his entire life as, I only have one reason to be here, and that's to serve the cause of Christ. And there's got to be a reason that this is happening to me right now. And I, I read in one of my references, um, I think it was, was um, I don't know if it was Martin Lloyd-Jones or, no, it wasn't him, but it was one of the other ones. And they gave this example. Evidently, um, St. Paul's Cathedral in London is world famous. Um, I've been there, to be honest with you. Now, we didn't get to go in it, but from the outside, it was like, not a lot. <laughs> it wasn't that impressive. But evidently, if you go on the inside, it is extremely impressive. But Sir Christopher Wren was the architect of that, that cathedral. And when they were building it, he, he would come through and, and check on their work. You know, the architect doesn't actually supervise day-to-day -day activities, but he does come through to make sure his plans are being carried out. And one day he was just walking through while the building was under construction, and he stopped to, with three different men, and he asked them, what are you doing? What is your task for the day? And one man he stopped said, well, I'm cutting this block to these specifications, and I'm going to put it in this part of the wall, and it's going to have this function in that wall. And he said, okay, good job. And he went to the next guy, and he said, what are you doing today? He said, well, I'm earning, and he named the, the number of pounds or shillings, whatever his wage was. I'm earning this much per day, and I'm here earning a living for my family. He said, okay, and went on to the third guy. And he asked the third guy, he said, what are you doing here today? And the guy stopped and thought for a minute, and he said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. Well, that third guy is how Paul reasoned. He was doing ordinary tasks. At times he was broke, had to go to making tents because that was his natural craft. He was a businessman. And at times Paul was very wealthy because tents were, were a necessary uh, commodity and a very needed commodity in that uh, time, time span and in, in the economy of those days. And so anytime Paul needed to, he would go back to making tents to support himself if he needed to. But no matter what Paul was doing, he always had in the back of his mind, I'm not here to do this job. This job is just a means to an end, and the end is I'm here to preach Christ. I'm here to, um, to spread the gospel. In fact, if you were there in Ephesians, uh, take a second. And, and go back to one chap or one uh, book to Galatians. And you see this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul has this, this attitude in Galatians 2 verse 7, 8, and 9. He's, he's talking about, he's defending the gospel in this section to the church at Galatia. And he says, but on the contrary... When they saw, he's talking about when he first started preaching the gospel and he went before the elders at the Jerusalem church. And he said, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, 
for he who worked affection or effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles as they to the circumcised. The phrase I wanted to key in there is, first of all, in verse 7, he said, the gospel for the uncircumcised has been committed to me. And then in verse 9, the grace that has been given to me. Paul viewed his entire life as God has given me this grace and my whole function is to transmit that grace to other people. And I'll be honest with you, would to God we all had that attitude because I was listening um, to John Bevere while I'm relating this, turn back to Romans chapter 15. I was listening to John Bevere, and he was talking about a church that he had visited in uh, Brazil. And they had gone, I, I think they, the church started the very end of, of the 20th century, like the late, very late 90s. Started with one family, and he was there 15 years after the start of the church. And they now had close to 300,000 members in a confederation of churches. In fact, he came to speak just to the ministers, just to the pastors in this, this group of churches that grew out of this first original church. In 15 years, they'd gone from one family to 300,000 people. They had close to 15 or 16,000 pastors that he was speaking to. And he asked, he, he had a private luncheon with, with a few of them uh, after he preached in this bigger, this large group meeting. And he asked the, the, the people who were there at the beginning or near the beginning, he said, what is it that you do? What, can, what, can, what do you do that you can account for this unbelievable growth in your church? And they, they didn't even hesitate. They said, the main thing that we preach and we emphasize to our people is that forget this life. You're here for 70, maybe 80 years if you're lucky. What's important is eternity. And that was Paul's mindset. It's not my life here that is important other than what I can do for eternity. If I'm doing activities, and some activities you just have to do. You, gotta, you get up, you got to cook, you got to eat, you got to wash dishes, you got to clean your house. You've got to do the mundane things. I've t I told kids back when I was teaching high school, they were, everybody was caught up in the mindset that I want to you know, as the, the guys on all the videos say, I want to have a job that I'm excited about and I'm excited to go to work every day. That would be great. And, and the advice, general advice that I've, I've always heard is you find something that you that is a passion to you and then you find a way to make money with that. Well, that's a great goal to go to, but sometimes 
you don't have the skills or the aptitude to make money at your passion. But you still have to get up and go to work. I, one of the things I admired about my dad, and, and I, was, I was no fool. I, I understood that my dad had great limitations, and I loved him, but he failed in a lot of ways, just like all of us. But he worked at the same job for 33 years. Only in the last five or six years did he ever get to a position where he really enjoyed what he was doing. The first 28, 27, 28 years, he went in, he did the work, he didn't particularly enjoy it, but he made a good living. He kept food and clothing and a house, a roof over the head of, of three boys and his wife. Towards the end of his career, he finally advanced enough where he could do something he really had a passion for. But that was the cream at the very end of his tale. But he, he, he spent a lot of days doing mundane things that weren't really fun, but it was a means to an end. It was a means to support his family. We all have that part of our life, but there, secondarily to that, when we have our free time, where do we spend our free time? Because let's face it, in today's world, we have a lot of free time. Most people, you can earn a pretty good living for most people in 40 hours, which leaves a lot of time left over to do other things. What, where do you invest that time? Do you invest it just sitting, reading, watching TV, doing things just to occupy the time till you have to get back up and go back to work that you really don't, a job you really don't like? Or do you invest that time in things that have to do with eternity? I, I know I have seen people, in, and I don't, I don't fault people. I realize that there are a lot of people that are very busy, and it's hard sometimes to get to church every time the doors are open. That's not an easy thing to do. But I also know people that they'll, they'll believe God for a boat, and then you won't see them in church from the middle of May to the middle of September because they're on the lake every weekend enjoying that boat, and it's completely pulled them out of church, and they're, they're, they're Christian witness. And it's not so much that, well, what did you miss in all that time, but what could you have given in all of that time? How many people could you have been there to witness to or to minister to that you weren't available because you're out playing? Just, it's totally different from what Paul looked. Paul looked at his life and said, I've been giving, given this grace, and it's for one reason, and that's that I might impart that grace to others. In Romans chapter 15, um, verse 15, he says the same thing. He says, Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of, of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's whole thought. And I know people will say, well, but Paul was an apostle. I'm, I'm not called to be an apostle or a prophet or a pastor or a teacher. 
I'm not called to any of the fivefold ministry gifts. Well, no, you may not be, but you are called to be a Christian. And every Christian has an opportunity to witness, to, to share what God's doing in your life. And I've said it before, the, the best witness that you will ever have is to share with people what God's doing in your life. People will, most, most non-Christians don't believe the Bible. If they believed the Bible, they'd already be Christians. So you, it's hard, and, and there is power from the Word of God to change people's hearts. But for most people, if you're witnessing to them, they might dispute your interpretation of what the Bible says, but they have a hard time disputing what God's done in your life. When you say, look, this is how God's ministered to me. This is what God's done for me in these areas of my life. And even more than that, when they see you excited about being a Christian. And I realize we all go through seasons where life can get tough. Life can get hard. It's just you, you do well to put one foot in front of the other. But if our entire life is that way, then we need to look at what changes do I need to make? I've got one person in the church that, bless her heart, they're, they don't like where they are right now. They're, they, they, they want certain things out of life and they can't get any of the things they want. And yet every time they come, and they come to me a lot, because they are desperate for help. But every time I say, well, if you would do this and this and this, then you would have what you want. Well, I can't do those things. And it's not that they can't do them, they don't want to do them, because they, they're, they fear the change that that's gonna bring in their life. Well, the old saying, I think it was a, uh, um, it's attributed to Einstein. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Well, sometimes, and, and I'll say this for my own life, forget anybody else, when I, when I have a complaint about how, how my life is right now, usually if I go to God, if I'm honest with him and, and, and honest with myself, I am where I am because of decisions that I made. And if I want to change where I am, change my circumstances, I need to go back and undo some of those decisions and do things differently and believe for a different result. Now that doesn't mean that I just go do things for the sake of doing. I just don't go change things for the sake of that I need to do something different. But you approach the word, you approach God. It's one of the reasons I've said one of the most important gifts, and I've had people argue with me and argue with me that tongues is not vital for your Christian experience. And I look at people and I think, really? One of Paul's things that he said in, in Romans chapter eight is, we don't know how to pray as we ought. Part of the reason we don't know how to pray as we ought is we're not praying in the spirit. 
Paul says in, in the letter to the Corinthians that when I pray in a spirit, I pray out divine mysteries. I'm praying the will of God. And as I, when I don't know what I need, I just start praying in the spirit and pray in tongues and let God pray it out. And at some point, I will start to get light if I, if I pray in the spirit and read my Bible. Because you also have to remember, Hebrews tells us that the word of God is alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword because it divides between the soul and the spirit. The spirit being the part of me that's born again where, where the Holy Ghost is totally united with me, knows God's will perfectly for me. And my soul, which is my mind, will, and my emotions, that normally is just in turmoil doesn't quite know what to do, doesn't know which way to step, thinks, I want to go this way, but I don't know if that'll work either. The word, the presence of the word will help me listen and know which, which voice is the voice I'm hearing coming from my spirit and from God or from my soul. And it's just me wanting something because I'm comfortable with it rather than listening to God not that God can't, won't ask you to do things you're comfortable with, but sometimes he's also going to ask you to do things you're uncomfortable with. He wants to stretch you. The difference is I need to know the difference between that, between praying in the Holy Spirit and feeding on the word. Eventually, at some point, I will start to get light on every decision I have to make. And it's when I start getting light that then I have a choice to follow the light or stay where I am. Then it's easier. I won't say it's easy because sometimes I had a discussion with, with Gina and I today. You know, when, when you need your faith the most is when it's the hardest to walk in faith. And that's usually when your emotions are running 180 degrees counter to where you want to go. You, you know God's calling you to walk directly north, but everything in your soul is screaming, run from the northern direction, run south. And, and you're full of fear, you're full of anxiety, you're full of, of depression, you're full of, I, I, I'm at a loss of, of more adjectives, but you, you, you want to do all of these things naturally, that's when it takes faith to turn and say, no, I'm going in the direction that I know I need to go, especially when, when it runs counter to how you have seen. And I'll, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I have always been one of the most self-confident individuals I've ever known in my life. And that's not bragging. That's just me. I, I'm the guy who took the engine out of my Volkswagen and disassembled it because I knew if you gave me a manual, I could figure out how to put that thing back together. And it wasn't until I had it in a million parts that I realized, man, I'm weighing over my head. My, my confidence in my ability and my skill level were nowhere near the same. So I, and, and that just illustrates that I, I've always had that confidence that no matter what I try, I can do it if I try long enough and hard enough. Now, with the Volkswagen engine, had I found somebody that actually knew what they were doing and allowed them to help me, I could have eventually learned how to put it back together and, and do it all. 
I know people that know how to do that that are a lot less smart than I am. I just didn't have the time, and to be honest with you, I didn't have the inclination because it got way too complicated and it wasn't fun anymore, so I just collected the parts in a box and took it to a guy, and he said, you know, I have to charge you extra when you bring it in like this, and it's like, I don't care. I just need my car back. So I paid for my, my hubris in that. But for me, <clears throat> where I, I don't have a, a problem launching off into new things, where God has to deal with me really hard is don't think that you can handle this going into it. My natural state is, yeah, I can do that. I know exactly what to do, or I think I do. And I, when I get in there, if I figure out that this doesn't work, I'll try something else and I'll figure, out, I'll figure my way out. There are times when God has to throw a, a bridle on me and stick a bit in my mouth and pull back hard and say, whoa, boy. You're getting out ahead of me. You need to slow down because you can't handle this. Only my anointing can handle this. And if you get ahead of my anointing, you're going to mess it up to where I can't fix it. So he's constantly reining me back. And I'm constantly thinking I, can, I should be farther than I am because I know I can handle the next two, three steps. Now, my wife, totally opposite personality which I know, you know, the Bible, the, the verse in the Old Testament says God sits in the heavens and laughs. I know he did that when he paired us up. <laughs> I know he thought, boy, it's going to be an adventure. Let's just see how these two get along because we're opposite in just about every aspect of our lives. But she has always had a tendency that I have to understand everything before I can step out and do something. Well, by the time you understand everything, usually the opportunity's gone. So God's got us hooked up together. He's got a, brit, a, a bit and a bridle in me holding me back, and he's got a, 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 a cattle prod on her backside saying, Come on, honey, go. You don't have to have all the answers. Let's get going. And between holding me back and pushing her forward, we sort of struggle along and, and figure out what God's doing for us as a couple. Well, those are the things that, that we need to be concentrating on and looking not so much, and I know I got way off far afield here. The attitude has to be, I'm not just here to earn a good living, live in a comfortable house, and play with my grandkids. I'm here to further the gospel. And to take the graces that God has given me and see those graces manifested in other people. And we all have some form of grace in our life that God has given to us that he wants us to reach out and do. It's one of the paradoxes that I see that I read statistics all the time. And the suicide rate in our country, astronomical. But you go to third world countries where people struggle to feed themselves every day. They struggle to have health care to where they can even, you know, stay alive. There are no suicides. And you would think in a country as prosperous as us that people would be content. And in a nation where, where a third world nation where, 
having enough food, having shelter, having basic necessities of life covered is difficult on a daily basis, that they would never be content. They would always, and yet what you find is the opposite. They live contented lives. The people in our nation are always looking and saying, well, yeah, I've got these toys, but there are all kinds of people out there who have a lot better toys than I have. And we always feel like we're missing it and we're not, we're not uh, attaining to enough, so we, all, we, we never feel content. Well, God, when he pours out his grace on us, that ought to help us to be content, except for the fact that we need to find a place to give that grace out. And when we get so, so eternity-minded that we start forgetting about the day-to-day disappointments and the day-to-day things that the problems that we have because we're just thinking about I've only got another 20 years I've only got another 30 years of effective lifespan in my time that I can affect people for the gospel and I need to get about doing what I'm doing I don't have time to feel bad about this I just got to get past it and go on so what if so-and-so offended me? So what if so-and-so, I was a failure at this? Put it behind me and let's press on and get about the Father's business. That's why Paul can look, and, and you know, I had visions of grandeur that I was going to get through 13 verses, and here we've been talking for 30 minutes, and I haven't even finished verse 1. But when you're eternally minded, you don't look at your natural circumstances and let them define you. You look at what God's doing in your life, and that defines who you are and what's, what's going on. Now, in verse 2, I want to at least introduce this, and, and we'll, um, well, I'll introduce it, but it's going to take a while to get through this. Paul says in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. He's talking about... I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. If you have heard of the dispensation, this gets into the different dispensations that this is one of the few places where Paul introduces or talks about dispensationalism. And I don't mean dispensationalism in the sense that um, we talk about secessionist. A secessionist would say that when the last apostle died, there are no more miracles. There are no more uh, tongues ceased, miracles ceased. Now we have the written word of God, and that's all we need. No, that taking dispensationalism to that extreme is silliness, to be honest with you. The dispensation that I'm talking about, literally, the Greek word there that is, is translated for dispensation is oikonomia which means oikos means the law and nomia means a house so it's the law of the house and it really talks about the how you would generally administer a a a group of people or a household it's talking about a a a way of of dealing with people we have and, and generally for most general dispensationalists we look at seven different dispensations that God uses. And the different dispensations are primarily how God deals with mankind, not how mankind deals with God. 
the first dispensation we would have would have talked about would have been the age of innocence and that was from the creation of Adam to the fall of Adam and Eve they were innocent God could come and deal with them face to face he spoke with them face to face it was a we don't really know how long the age of innocence was the Bible's not real clear about the time span between when Adam was created and when when they fell but through all of that time period God could deal with mankind because sin wasn't in them and God they could be filled with God's glory my opinion if you could have seen Adam and Eve back then part of the reason that they were were naked and didn't know they were naked was they were clothed with the glory of God the same way Jesus was clothed clothed with glory on the Mount of Transfiguration the second dispensation goes from the fall of man up to the flood of Noah and that was the age of conscience where God just let people do whatever their conscience guided them to do that was a total failure at the end of that time period there was only one family left that that wasn't completely sold out to sin and that was Noah's family so God destroyed that everyone that was alive with the exception of Noah's family so that he could start over again and he brought in the dispensation of human governments now conscience still is alive and and God still deals with us through our conscience but we learned we should have learned one lesson there that your conscience is not a good guide people's conscience can be seared it can be altered your conscience really is based more on how you were raised and the customs that you're used to rather than what God's word says and I'll give you a perfect example there was a, a, um, um, a minister, and I, I had this story related to me, and I'm, just, I'm going to tell it as if it was factual because it illustrates the point. Uh, this, this pastor had, because the United States was founded by Puritans who were teetotalers, we have spent, the, the Christians in this country have spent most of our time as teetotalers. We don't, most Christians view consuming of alcohol as a vice not a virtue well this pastor viewed alcohol as a vice he went to europe to to ostensibly he thought he was going on the mission field to deal with europeans that had lost their way this was in the 30s and 40s uh, or right after the war um, in the late 40s 50s and he was going to, to, to Christians, churches, to minister to churches that had lost their way. And he had made a vow to God that I won't drink, I'll never drink alcohol. But then he also made a vow that when I go on the missions field, I will eat and drink whatever's set before me. I'm not going to be picky. Well, he got to France. Well, in France, when you sit down for a meal, they pour a glass of wine. And he sat down for this group meal of just all pastors, and everybody had a glass of wine in front of their their plate just like he did and he's sitting there debating with God he said either way I go I'm violating a, a solemn oath that I took not to drink alcohol or to eat or drink anything that was set before me he said to God I'm in a conundrum and he said in about that time 
one of the pastors leaned over to him and said, Brother, I just wanted to ask you, I know you're from, from America. He said, but is it true that even the saints in America drink coffee? And these pastors were part of a fellowship that viewed caffeine as a, a, an addictive chemical, and it is addictive. You drink caffeine every day and you stop cold turkey, you're going to go through some, you know, it's, it's not addictive on the level of heroin or some of these other narcotics, but you're going to get caffeine headaches. You're going to, you're going to crave that caffeine after a while. Well, these guys considered that horrible. And he said, and I'm looking there thinking, within 30 seconds, I would have turned to this guy and said, instead of having wine, would it be all right if I just had a cup of coffee? And he said, and had I done that, I would have totally destroyed my witness to these people. And I would have not been able to minister to them at all. Well, the reason that they had these differing views, he was raised that alcohol is always a vice. And these French pastors were raised that coffee is always a vice and alcohol is perfectly normal. Both of them were areas of their conscience not areas that the word was just absolutely hard and fast on. So our conscience can be a guide if our conscience has been renewed to the word, but if it hasn't been renewed to the word, it's not a great guide. From, from Noah to Abraham was human governments, and we still have that, still in effect today. The age of promise comes from Abraham to Moses, um, comes from the promise that God gave to Abraham. We see it in, um, well, several of Paul's letters that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then from Moses to the crucifixion, we have the, the dispensation of the law of Moses. That was interrupted and we'll, we'll, there's a seven-year period called the tribulation where we will go back to the, that that dispensation but then we have the dispensation of the church which is what Paul's talking about here the grace that God gave him and that's from the resurrection up till the the rapture of the church and then the seventh one is the millennial reign that comes from the second coming to the white throne judgment all of those God's dealt different ways with with mankind the one constant though if you go over to Hebrews, and I'm just going to introduce this and then we'll pick it up next week from there. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses, the writer of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, he introduces this thought of dispensationalism. He says in verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds the various times and in various ways spoken time past are those different dispensations and it was because of the needs of the people the thing that hasn't changed you're there in hebrews go over to hebrews chapter 11 is how we relate to god in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, starts out and says, By faith, Abel, 
this is in during the the dispensation of of um, human government. It's past, or excuse me, Abel was in in conscience. Verse five says, "By faith, Enoch." Now we're not sure when Enoch lived, but I think it was before Moses, or excuse me, before Noah. So that also would have been. Um, in the age of, of dispensation of conscience. Verse 6, he sums it all up. He says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He makes it very clear right there that faith is, without faith you cannot please God. But then in, in verse 7, by faith Noah... So Noah approached God by faith. That's during the human governments. By faith, Abraham, that's during the, um, the dispensation of promise. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. By, in verse 21, by faith, Jacob. Verse 22 says, by faith, Joseph. Then 23, by faith, Moses, which Moses is going to transition from the age of promise to the age of law the what verse 23 is talking about is in the age of promise but in verse 31 it talks about by faith Rahab Rahab was under the law God had already given Moses the law by this time and then in verse 32 it says what more shall I say for time would fail me to to tell of Gideon and, and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. He lists all kinds of people under the law. So just in that short time in, in chapter 11, he talks about people in the age of conscience, in the age of, of human governments, in the age of promise, and in the age of law. What he doesn't say is talks about, and it's never related and let me give you this one verse. I'll have to go back and read it. It's not in my notes, but it's Isaiah 9, 6. This is one that we always hear at Christmas time, but it's a messianic prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And this illustrates the church as a mystery. It says... For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When you look at that, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that's the first coming of Jesus as the Lamb of God. When it says the government will be upon his shoulder, that's the second coming of Christ. That's the millennial reign, when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. There is absolutely no pause between the first coming and the second coming. That's part of the reason, if you, you go back and look at, at the disciples right before Jesus was crucified, Peter said, Lord, you know, when, when, when Jesus said, you are all going to desert me, Peter said, Lord, I will never desert you. And Peter even showed up at, at the Garden of Gethsemane with the sword. Peter was ready to fight to the death. In fact, he tried to start a war with Malchus. Peter was ready to die, but he was ready to die because he didn't see the first coming standalone. 
he saw the, the only one coming of Christ, and that was Christ was coming to set up his human government or his government, and he was going to rule and, and overthrow the Romans, and Peter was more than willing to help him start the war. He didn't understand that there was going to be a 2,000-year church age. That's the mystery. Verse 3 of, of Ephesians 2, he says, um, well, no, in verse 5, he says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man. This church age, this was a mystery to every age until Jesus resurrected. It's part of the reason he had to tell the disciples when he ascended to heaven. He said, go to Jerusalem, sit down, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? Because they didn't understand why they were still there and he was going to heaven. There, they ask him, in fact, in Acts, in the, the story of the ascension, they said, but Lord, what about your kingdom? They're expecting Jesus to set up his earthly kingdom, the millennial reign, right then. I believe, and this is a little side thought, but I believe that's part of the reason that um, Judas was so easily deceived by Satan to betray Jesus. I don't think Judas ever thought for a second that Jesus would be killed. Because Jesus had had more than one incident where people had come to throw him off a cliff, to stone him, to do, do him physically harm, and he just walked out through the middle of them. I think Judas thought, I'm helping to bring in the war against the Romans, and Jesus is going to, this is going to start it, and this will bring in the millennial reign, and this is my part in it. And yes, I'm, it looks like I'm betraying him, but he won't let this stand. And he was so deceived and so disheartened because he really didn't have a proper relationship with Jesus that rather than seek forgiveness, he committed suicide, which it, it creates an, an interesting thought. What if he had done what Peter did? Because remember, when Jesus resurrected, he said, go tell my disciples and Peter. He didn't include in include Peter in his group of disciples any more than he just included Judas. So Peter was pretty far out there too. He was ready to quit. He just didn't commit suicide. What if Judas had done what Peter did and approached Jesus, hung on, and said, Lord, forgive me? I have no doubt that Jesus would have forgiven Judas. Why would he not? How would have the story have changed had Judas sought out forgiveness rather than see, seeing despair and committing suicide. But next week we'll get into why the church was a mystery and how it falls into what we do. Because it's, it's, it really is all about it being a mystery. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.